risk. Risk is our business. That's what the starship is all about. That's why we're aboard her. Engage. There are three things to remember about being a starship captain. Keep your shirt tucked in, go down with the ship, and never abandon a member of your crew. I don't care if the odds are against us. If we're going to lose, then we're going to go down fighting. But we're going to learn from those mistakes. That's what being human is all about. What a piece of work is man. It is a tale told by an idiot. Make it so. Hello, Internet, and welcome to the Boldly Going Podcast, a podcast where three guys talk about every episode of Star Trek that's ever been made. I'm your host, Alec. I'm Bailey. And I'm Ethan. And this week, Bailey is back. We missed you last week, Bailey. Yes. Blue got you down, but can't keep you down. Nope. He's back. So, folks, we know that there was popular demand out there to hear what Bailey had to say about Mud's women. So we're going to give Bailey just a couple of minutes before this episode starts proper to talk about... And by popular demand, I think we generally mean our singular subscriber and commentator. (laughs) Shout out to you, Mad Cinder on YouTube. We appreciate uh, all your comments and all your feedback and the fact that you are the first of, hopefully, a few who who will be listening to us on a regular basis. But in all seriousness, we do appreciate your comments. We do appreciate your support. And I do see the analytics on some of the other websites. So we do appreciate the, those of you who are listening and who are commenting and talking to us. We appreciate it. It's It's been a lot of fun so far, and we're glad that some of you can make the journey with us. So, Bailey, I'm just going to ask you one question to kind of kick the ball rolling about Mud's Women. And that question is, this episode was originally intended as a potential pilot for Star Trek. What do you think of Mud's Women as a pilot? And then go on and give me your thoughts as a whole for the rest of it. Um, (laughs) I think that it was well-placed within the first season. (laughs) I do not think it would be a good pilot at all. I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I could only sympathize with whatever audience had to watch that as the pilot. I didn't have a lot of notes on it because I didn't think it had really a really potent story by any means. That's Um, also fair. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Mostly, it was quotes and um, exclamations of what is Leo wearing in the first when he first arrives. Ah, uh, yes. Mud's mm. attire. His yes. big belt buckle is great. His hat not so much? Yes. I found it funny when McCoy uh, said to Scotty, amen to that, Scotty, after they all <laughs> left the room. It was something else. So that's that's all I have for you. It was weird. It was you know, weird. sometimes short summaries are the best. I think it's it's fair for something to be a little uh, brought down to bare bones. When I don't think there's too much more that needs to be added. We to squeezed our an discussion. hour worth of discussion about this episode. So then, just give the folks at home um, your A to F rating of Mud's Women. C. <laughs> Better than E. So Bailey liked this episode. Two whole letters higher than Ethan, but <laughs> half a point less than me who gave it a C plus. Ah, so yes. in our general opinion is Ethan thinks this is pretty bad, but still a pass because as Ethan has said, he views these episodes more like a teacher would. Yeah. So you either fail or you don't fail. So he views this episode as not a failure, but not but it's, very it's good. a pass with a couple of merit points, but not particularly many. Whereas Bailey and I would see it somewhere as more probably like an av- like. A thoroughly underwhelming average-ish yes. is kind of how I see a C. It's only a C because it was kind of quirky. <laughs> That's about it. You got real heavy on that soft filter. What a generous word. <laughs> we are now back to talk about The Enemy Within, which I'll be honest with you all, it's an episode I don't really remember much of when I do my walkthroughs, but I was reminded that there's a lot of quality behind this episode. So it first aired on the 6th of October, 1966, it was the fifth episode produced, and it was the fifth episode aired. So this was the first time of the episodes we've been watching where they actually perfectly lined up. It was written by Richard Matherson. This was the only script that he ever wrote for Star Trek, and it was directed by Leo Penn. Uh, again, just like the last couple of directors, this was the only one he did because he took a day over during the filming, ran over budget, and was then not invited back to do any more episodes. That is drastically unfortunate. I very much think that he did a good the, job. The directing in this episode is very, very good. Yeah. Some of the dramatic camera shots, we'll get to that. It goes without saying, for those of you who've seen it, but 
Matheson went on record to say his main influence in writing this episode was Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which seems fairly straightforward and to a degree. Although I feel he takes a very different spin on it than that story. Yeah, I almost would say that um, if he hadn't said that, I would have called it a take on Jungian psychology and the persona. But then again, that's in some ways similar to Jekyll Hyde, but not. It, there's a little bit of semantics you can get into regarding that, but I guess we'll get there when we get there. Before we get too deep in the episode, as we like to do, um, what are your general thoughts on this episode? Because I'll be honest with you, I rather liked it, and I wasn't expecting to, because again, this is one I never remember when I'm going through. It's not to me, oh, Balance of Terror is coming up. What a masterpiece, which, as an aside, Balance of Terror is a masterpiece. But this one really pleasantly surprised me. I thought it was very good. I think that this is going to be one of my favorite episodes. I do like a lot of its, its setup, its cinematography, its premise, and just the way it was executed and brought the characters together. So that's a bit of a spoiler. This might break into some of my higher rankings. Mm. I thought it was pretty good. I was a little, I think, taken aback when the, the premise kind of first came in. Because I, I, you see a lot of the times in, especially like modern um and contemporary uh, media, like the whole idea of a evil twin or evil double, and it and it's not always well executed. But I was like, okay, I I've enjoyed Star Trek this far, and I trust it. I'm gonna give it a chance. Excellent. Song. And um, you'd be happy to know, Ethan, that your thoughts line up with Gene Roddenberry himself because he picked this as one of his top ten favorite episodes during the 25th anniversary of the Star Trek franchise. Uh, if you're anyone's curious, the uh, the TV guide from August 31st, 1991 is where that quote is in. But Gene Roddenberry thought this was a top ten episode of the entire show for him. He really liked it. We watched the preview, as I like to do, and I'll be honest with you folks, the preview gives too much away about this episode. Way, way, way too much. This is one of those one of the worst cases of preview oversharing that I've ever seen. So if you've never seen this episode before, A, don't listen to this podcast because we will spoil it for you, but B... Don't watch the preview either. So pause the podcast, watch the episode cold, then come back and hear what we have to say. Although if you're into the history of cinematography, this might be an early indicator of the trend Hollywood's going to take in terms of their trailers. Because, I don't know, that seems to be the way modern trailers sort of run things by. Basically giving away the whole thing, so... That's why I only ever watch the first two trailers. Mm. And that's my, that's my rule of thumb for movies. I will watch the very first trailer because ten times... Nine times out of ten... It's a minute and a half of literally nothing but a title. Mm -hmm. Then I will watch the second trailer, which tends to have a little bit more meat to it. But by the time you get to the third, the fourth, the TV spots, you've seen the whole thing. So for me, I only ever watch the first two trailers. I think it's pretty reasonable. So, our cold open begins on the planet Alpha 3. There is an away team down there on a Alpha G... Alpha 3? I thought it was Alpha 177. You're right! It was Alpha 177. I was wrong! <laughs> Look at that. I'm already earning my keep. By the way, don't earn anything. <laughs> Alpha 177, they are on a geological research mission. They found, like, a doggy with a horn, which is the most adorable little costume I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, this fluffy unicorn dog is great. This small dog with the mane. What should we call it? Let's call it Aslan for the rest of the episode. All right. Fine with it. So Aslan is a cute little dog. He's got a big horn on his head and a few antenna as well. He's a little alien specimen they found. They're going to take him back up to the ship because this is the original series and not TNG or a later series where they'll be much more conscious about not disturbing the ecosystem. They're like, hey, I beam up this animal and some rocks and some plants and we're going to go see what it looks like under our <laughs> Well, they only have limited time on the planet because, as they mentioned, it gets pretty cold at night around negative 20 degrees below zero. And I'm presuming that would be centigrade because I'm Canadian and correct. Um, but then we see Sulu say, that's nippy. <laughs> Sulu, spoilers, Sulu is like the best part of this episode. That's, he's pretty good on that. Sulu yeah. crushes it this episode. All his lines are great. I believe they said something about it getting below 173, though, at its very coldest. Okay. So nobody nobody wants you to be down there that long. They have their bright plastic tent set up in the background as their research station. It looks like one of those parachutes that they got out when you were in gym class in high school and you got to play Parachute Day. Yeah, not the most robust planetary expedition equipment I've ever seen. But to their credit, they're not supposed to be there that long. But it's only because yeah. of the terrible mix-up that they will be there longer than the uh, parachute tent mm -hmm. can provide. Crewman Fisher, like a dummy, falls down a cliff, cuts his hand, and gets a bunch of yellow gunk in it. Kirk's like, well, Crewman Fisher, you better uh, beam back up to the ship and let McCoy take a look at you. Mm -hmm. So they beam Fisher back up. 
But the transporter is having some trouble picking him up. There's a long delay before he shows up. Scotty has to struggle with the matter stream for a little bit. He talks about how it feels like it was a burnout. But they managed to get Fisher through okay, and the transporter seems to go back to normal. And let me tell you what's already really striking about this. The uniforms are super on point. This is the first one, one where I've really noticed the gold trim mm -hmm. on the uniforms, as well as... Is this an updated version of the um, I think uniform for the... from Corbin Light Maneuver, I believe so, but I'm not 100% sure. It could be you just we haven't noticed yet because the difference was so good. Nothing major will change, but I think the gold trim may have been added. This episode is the first appearance of Kirk's green relaxed dress uniform. That's true. Which we will get to that when we get to that, but spoiler alert... That uniform was designed so that audiences would be able to tell between Kirk and the duplicate. And then there's the technicians, which get no respect and don't have a real uniform. They, they just have this weird slave robe almost. They it's have really weird. their <laughs> orange jumpsuit for the engineers, and there's a blue jumpsuit for the medical guys. Or the I did guys. see the smock. Uh, Dr. McCoy's smock. It was wonderful. Scotty says the transporter acted like a burnout, but everything checks out. Kirk is beamed up onto the ship, and there's a little continuity error there where Shatner's uniform is missing the badge mm -hmm. that's supposed to have. It's oddly noticeable because <laughs> the uniforms are very simple. The only piece of decoration they have on them is the little badge and the yeah. little trim, and when the badge is not there, you can really see it. And cinematography break here, I think they do a really good job of showing and not telling that they're having technical difficulties. Because yeah. no one is like, oh no, the transporter's taking longer than it should. It's just like Scotty's flipping switches, and it's clicking and clacking, and it's look yeah. consternation. It's more like a... It's taking a beat longer. Yeah. Absolutely. Respect yeah. your audience. Give them things to work with. People are going to arrive at the right conclusions. Yeah. This, epi this episode is heavy on respect your audience, actually. Which, to a more modern audience, you might say, what the heck are you talking about? But to an audience from that period, there's a lot of show, don't tell. Absolutely. So Kirk is beamed aboard. He's very dizzy and disoriented. So Scotty's like, I'll help you get to McCoy so you can get checked out. He tells the other guy not to leave the transporter room unattended, but the guy does anyway. And he walks out of the room for unknown reasons, following Scotty and Kirk. There's a pause of like a few seconds, then the transporter goes on again, and Kirk beams back on. But this isn't good Kirk. This is evil Kirk. And how can we tell, Alec? We can tell because the camera zooms under his face. There's dramatic lighting. Shatner makes this crazed expression, and the music goes da 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 da. Rip headphone users. Um, <laughs> but evil Kirk, yeah, he beams up with a, a lovely back to the camera frame shot, which is of course subtle sim symbolism. I'm not sure if we caught that, but uh, the eyeliner helped. That yes, he was evil. This Kirk. is my favorite version of the Grinch. <laughs> <laughs> like Boris Karloff, he's got that excellent uh, the sneer going on a lot of his shots. Mm, good times. It's funny because when people talk about Shatner being hammy and not a good actor, this episode is an odd example of that because I think in this episode Shatner is both terrific and also kind of terrible Yeah. at the same time. And that to me is, <laughs> is staggering because he's got a lot of very good very serious, solid acting moments when he's playing good Kirk, quote-unquote. As the episode goes on, it becomes a little more complicated than just good Kirk, bad Kirk. But bad Kirk has some deliciously hammy, hammy moments, and we'll get to those when we get to them. We have our opening credits. We come back. We see McCoy in sickbay. He's helping this crewman Fisher, and he says, Fisher! By the way, it's great patient care. He's one-on-one. -on -one. He's personally toweling off his hands. He gives him the Windex. <laughs> he gives him the Windex! Yeah. I, I almost forgot. Please talk about the Windex. Um, I'm just going to say that the one thing about Star Trek that bothers me a little bit is that it's particularly obvious that medicine has taken several steps backwards in the time that it has <laughs> taken since the present day. I, I do like it when a show advances all aspects of technology, and I expect somewhat more than a Windex bottle. It, it just it doesn't feel quite right. I'm not going to put any points against the show for it. I just think that of all the things they could have put a little more thought into is how to make medicine feel more futuristic. They could have just thrown it in a silver tube that went, woo 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 Yeah. Which they later do, by the way, because most, because I know you're bothered by this now, going forward, most of McCoy's medical doohickeys will be little silver tubes that make sounds, and he doesn't explain what they do, and we can just go, oh, future medicine. Yes. But the Windex bottle is, Star Trek didn't have a big budget. This doesn't shock anybody. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but I'm sure you could have found, like, a salt shaker or, like, a 
cardboard tube covered yeah, in spray paint. Yeah. You could have found something other than a Windex bottle because McCoy <laughs> literally holds the guy's hand open and squirts his hand. And then pulls over the towel. But here's this delightful line where he says, you know, Fisher, I don't think you're hurt that bad. Did you hurt yourself so you could get a vacation in sick bay? And he sends him away by saying, I don't have any sympathy for clumsy men. <laughs> evil Kirk comes in, and we know he's evil because he immediately goes, Give me some brandy, McCoy! Give me that Saurian brandy! Immediately. Without any without any hesitation, McCoy's like, The heck? Okay. And Evil Kirk grabs McCoy by the throat and says, I said, give me that brandy! So McCoy opens the, opens the medical cabinet, pulls out the... Really good-looking alien-ish bottle. I actually really like the prop that the Saurian Brandy's in. Yeah, it was actually really cool. And he gives it to him, and Kirk starts swigging from the bottle. Evil Kirk. And he walks out into the hallway. As as lay people to the medical community, I'm going to ask you to... Does this seem like responsible medical care to you? I mean, I'm not a doctor, but I know alcohol is good for you. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to say that Dr. McCoy loses a few points throughout this episode. I do feel like he's falling a little behind... In um, his his bearing of medical responsibility. First off, medical branding—that's an 1800s thing. I get this is a space wagon train deal, but even modern doctors, no brandy in the office. Wow, no medical alcohol—you get something a it's little more. It's good to know we can't contained. trust modern doctors, folks, because they will not give you brandy. <laughs> they will not give you brandy. <laughs> give me my brandy. Uh, and, <laughs> give me my brandy. And and same thing, just letting the patient dictate their medical care. Don't care if you're the captain, Bones. you got to stand up, grow a little bit of spine. You're going down on my friends list for this. To be fair, I mean, if one of you walked in unexpectedly, when you're like, hey, buddy, how's it going? And he suddenly grabs you by the throat <laughs> and demands brandy. That's an unexpected little sequence to have happen. That's true. We have a very short scene uh, in between this where Kirk goes into his quarters after a, the post-mission captain's log. The captain's log for this episode is interesting, by the way, because it seems to have been recorded in past tense. Yeah. As in Kirk is saying, we had an impo- we had a double of me beamed aboard. He speaks past tense for most of it, though Spock has a log later on that is clearly present tense, and so does Kirk. We have a little scene where Kirk goes into his quarters, and Janice Rand, the yeoman, is there collecting some data. And even though we have established in Corbomite Maneuver that Kirk has clearly like an attraction to Janice. This is an important little scene to remind us that that is there, especially when you consider this episode actually aired before Corbo might maneuver. So they have this small little interaction where Kirk is you know, very professional, but it's clear that he's attracted to her. They hit Rand with a soft filter, though not as soft a filter as they use religiously in Mud's Women, where every other <laughs> shot was a soft filter shot. Uh, Grace Lee Whitney looking very looking very good and professional. Maybe she's shot. got some Venus drugs. Who knows? Maybe she's got a little bit of that Venus yeah. drug. Who knows? Evil Kirk is walking down the hallway, swigging from the bottle straight like a pirate. <laughs> Thank goodness none of the crewmen saw their captain walking down the hallway, chugging from the bottle. Well, if we're going to go into uh, laxity of the crew, like, I didn't see sweater, like, uh, vest guy. This, this Where were you, fishing vest guy? You weren't at your post. We needed him, more than ever. Evil Kirk makes his way to Janice's quarters. He goes into them, looks at her abstract art, and waits. <laughs> then we have a cut back to Kirk in his quarters, and he's shirtless for this yes. scene. He's got the towel wrapped around him. Make sure everybody knows that William Shatner's working out. This is a plus one on the shirtless counter, um, bringing us up to two. It is not a ruined shirt, though, so we will not be counting that. We will be counting this. I believe shirtless Kirk and ruined shirt Kirk should both be quantified because they both happen enough, but they need to be their own counters. Yes, because there's a Amen. there's a big difference between like, did you lose your shirt in a dignified way, or are you just giving us some some uh, beefcake? Yeah, beefcake. Some. some so we are only four episodes in, and Kirk has been shirtless in two of them. That is fifty percent shirtlessness, and he has torn his shirt in the first one. So if you want to get real technical, folks, we're at seventy-five percent of episodes have Kirk being shirtless at some point. In some way, shape, or form, it's absolutely wonderful. What a madman! <laughs> Kirk's in there without his shirt on. Spock comes in and he says, "Jim, what's up, my dude?" Except he doesn't say it like that because he's Spock. And he says, "McCoy asked me to check on you." Kirk goes, "Oh, that's nice. Thanks for checking on me." Good doctor's been putting you on again. Because <laughs> Spock says, "McCoy said that you demanded brandy and then acted like a wild, acted like a, mo- a wild man." Is the words Spock uses. No, I did not. <laughs> Kirk just says, nope, and Spock goes, I, I did okay. not. I did not do that. I did not act like a wild I man. I did not have the brandy. I did not. <laughs> that one was the best. So then Kirk 
just says, that's cool, Spock. McCoy's been pulling your leg because he does that. And Spock goes, I guess that makes sense. And he leaves. This is still pretty early in the episode, though, so it's forgivable. This is the first appearance of Kirk's relaxed dress. Yes. Kirk yes. puts on his little green uniform. I'm going to say I'm not a fan of green on the ship. It doesn't seem to fit. Maybe it's because we've all seen the classic Star Trek colors. Maybe it's because green legitimately does clash with everything. But the fact that it just it doesn't seem to fit. When he's with the other characters, green just seems so out of place. This is the first season version of this tunic. They will try to make a different version for season two. It's going to be in Charlie X and Court Martial as well. And on this side of Paradise, it will be in Kirk's briefcase. This particular tunic is made of wool crepe fabric, and it is in contrast to the velour of the standard duty uniforms. The original intention of having this uniform made was so that audiences would be able to tell Kirk and his double apart, because apparently that would have been very difficult to tell the crew, two of them, apart. Well, I appreciate it. It helps. So Kirk and Spock in his green uniform go to see Scotty in the transporter. Scotty has got the doggo from the earlier sequence. Well, one of two doggos. Aslan. Yes, he's got got Aslan. So Aslan has been split into two parts. Scotty explains that when the dog got beamed up, a couple seconds later, another one came through. He said the first one was very gentle. It was a very sweet little doggy. But the second one was very aggressive, very hyper. They opened the little cage, and it's biting and snarling, and they can't even get close to it. Yeah, and we're gonna that's going to be a super important setup <laughs> for the rest of the episode, that there's a bestial and a passive form that come out of the transporter. Mm-hmm. Scotty calls them opposites rather than duplicates. Yes. Ethan is pointed out, We were, Ethan and I watched this episode together this week, and that is a point that this scene comes a... My only real problem with pacing is this scene comes a little too early. Because later in the episode, you almost forget that Scotty has explained how the two halves are explicitly different. Yeah, there'll be a moment when I explain some of the narrative dissonance that almost happens within the episode. When I was going through it, I almost gave it quite a bit of negative points, but the episode pulls through with the latter part of the episode explaining what's what's going to happen. But I'll say that for when we get there. There's some anticipation for you. So now we have another problem, though, because Sulu and three other guys are still down on the planet. And Scotty's like, look, we can't risk bringing them through the transporter. We don't know what's going to happen to them. So now they have to try and solve their problem with the transporter before the other crew are beamed up. It is worth pointing out that if you have seen the entire Star Trek series, this episode becomes a little silly because then you go, why didn't they just send a shuttle down to go get them? It's worth pointing out at the time this episode was written, they obviously didn't think the Enterprise would have a shuttle bay and shuttles and that transporters were the only way to do things. Because that hadn't been written yet, I don't mark that against the episode story. If this episode had come later, after we'd already established a shuttle bay, then I would have said, why the heck don't they just send down a shuttle? But yeah. because it hasn't happened yet, yeah. I don't mark it as points against it. Yeah, we're all agreed on that. There's no way to get them up until they're safe with the transporter. Uh, we have a break, and then we get back to the episode, and we're in Janice's quarters. Evil Kirk is creeping behind the orange... Yeah, oh man, he is creeping hardcore. Yep. <laughs> I don't think that you could see that shot and not get some kind of, like, skin going down your my spine. My skin crawled a little bit. Yeah. Although, let me tell you, you are a big fan of these, um, the Lady Officer short skirts. I like the Lady I am short not skirts. a fan of the Lady Officer short skirts. I don't find it you don't think practical it looks professional? or professional. I think it's very professional. No, I don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. No. The costume designer, I mean, Gene Roddenberry's Gene influence, Roddenberry of course, is designed, all over that. Uh, no, Gene Roddenberry didn't influence that. Gene Roddenberry designed that uniform himself. <laughs> Thanks, Gene. That was Gene's own design. There's an episode coming up, What Are Little Girls Made Of, where it says, my favorite Gene Roddenberry story. Are you story. serious? <laughs> yeah. It's a really good episode about androids. Okay. I, but it's got a brilliant line that is behind the scenes. We'll get there when we get there. But this scene is not designed to make you feel good. And no, it doesn't. It, it works does really not. well. I am... I was talking to Ethan about this before we got started. I do, however, appreciate the era that this was shot in because a more modern show might have taken this farther. Yeah, much farther. I agree. And I appreciate... Because this scene makes you uncomfortable, makes you sick to your stomach, but it doesn't revel in, like, yeah. that. It, it's, it serves its purpose. Something very wrong is happening. Well, I think it doesn't, like... It doesn't sexualize the incident, which makes it more potent, in a way. A lot of credit goes to Grace Lee Whitney, actually. I, rewatching it this time, I realize that she's much better than I remember, like, as an actress. And particularly mm-hmm. in this episode, she really sells it. He comes at her, says, you know, call me Jim. 
I know that we've been pretending that we have... And she clearly shows in this scene that she does have some... that To a degree that that is true. That it is a kind of... That there is of some mutual attraction back and forth. Mm-hmm. But then he says, You're too much woman for me to ignore, Janice. <laughs> and gets all rapey. And it's really yeah, uncomfortable. Yeah. He tries to force kiss her. And so she scratches the crap out of him. And Crewman Fisher is walking by, and he sees this go on, and he's like, what the heck's going on, Captain? Why are you behaving this way? <laughs> Janice tells hit Fisher to call for Spock, so Evil Kirk leaves Janice and chases Fisher down. By the way, that's a good character moment, too, because it shows that in the Enterprise, the only person who's really able to have a proper handle on Kirk if he got out of line would be Spock. Mm-hmm. Spock's probably the only person on this vessel that could reliably call on at any moment to overpower and pacify James yeah. if they really needed to. Fisher tries to call Spock, but Evil Kirk beats the crap out of him. To the point where we will later see him with so much blood on his hands. <laughs> which, by the way, looks more like red lipstick, but we'll get into that. But still, it's like Kirk beats Fisher yeah. unconscious. We come back from the commercial break, and it is an intense commercial break. Because you think, did we just watch Kirk beat a crewman to death? Because it really looks like we just saw Kirk beat a crewman to death. Kirk is like, what the heck? You t-? We cut back to the medical bay. Kirk is talking to Janice. And again, Grace Lee Whitney is really selling the scene that she's like on the verge of a breakdown. And he's like, what the heck are you talking about, Janice? I never attacked you. And Kirk's being a little tiny bit insensitive. Borderline gaslighting. <laughs> he's like, Janice, look at me. I'm not all scratched. Up. What the heck are you talking about, woman? I've been in my quarters the whole time. And she's sitting there, and she's sitting there almost crying because of what has happened. Grace Lee Whitney is just really selling this scene. And Kirk's like, I don't know, honey. Like, maybe hysteria got to you. A little bit of the 60s creeping into that episode. Yeah. But thank God Fisher survived because he sticks his head out from the other room and he's like, no, it's true. You attacked her. I was there and you beat me up. And the boy's like, go back to bed, Fisher. Fisher's not looking at all beat up. He might have a little bit of bruising on his cheeks, but not even near enough battle damage to account for the, the massive amounts of fake pink blood that was on Captain, fake, like, evil Captain Kirk's head. And by the way, when I say pinkish blood, like, I've seen a lot of blood. It does not look like blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, neither of us can say the same. But what I, I mean, I haven't seen blood either, but it looked not too real to me. It doesn't, <laughs> no. it doesn't really matter. because uh, just a, Of course, low, low budget, do what you can, get as close to possible as you can get to red and, and go from there. And we'll, we'll take that as it comes. But, but what's important is now we have two witnesses plus McCoy in his earlier. Yeah. So now Kirk's going, huh, maybe... <laughs> And don't forget, Kirk has been made aware about the fact that the dog got split into two parts. Yes. Um, what's been made aware to him by engineering is that there is a process of splitting and that it separates into that bestial and passive form. And that's going to be important in a few minutes. In this scene, then, Spock deduces the situation. He goes, there's only one logical explanation. He says imposter. And at first I thought that that meant he thought that there was, like, um, someone who had snuck aboard. But then I realized as the episode went on, he didn't mean that was probably just a poor choice of word. And Spock should have said something like, you have a duplicate. But Spock figures it out. He's like, oh, there's two versions of you. One is savage and brutal, and the other is like yourself. We don't realize yet, at this point in the episode, but we will, that even good Kirk is suffering and he has weaknesses. It takes a bit longer for them to appear, because evil Kirk is immediately drinking booze in the hallway and trying to get handsy with Janice. Those are immediately obvious character failings. But good Kirk, we will see as an episode goes on that he is also struggling without that other part of him. Scotty uh, doesn't know what the heck happened. Yes. Scotty is continuing his trend of not knowing what the heck happened. Yeah. He's like, what caused it? I don't know. How long is it going to take to fix it? I don't know. But an important note in this scene is that there is a a very obvious synchrony between the dog and Kirk. They're both super passive. Mm -hmm. Kirk's just walking around carrying this dog and he's just sleeping. And Mm -hmm. he's also not being his usual engaging, rambunctious self. So you're starting to see maybe there's something going on here in that vein, to the point where Spock will give Kirk a particular bit of advice. Because this is the scene where we start to realize what's going on with Kirk. He is getting soft and indecisive because he isn't sure what to do. He says, what should we do? How should we capture him? And Spock is the one who says, they should probably have phasers. Kirk goes, yes, yeah, uh, phasers. They should probably be set on stun. Yeah, yeah, they should probably be set on stun. 
don't forget about the crew down on the surface who are stuck down there as the temperature continues to drop. Yeah. And then Kirk decides he wants to announce to the crew that there is a duplicate version of himself. And Spock is very strongly against this. Mm. Ethan and I had a bit of a discussion even when that episode was happening, so I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Bailey, because you weren't with us at the time. Spock says to Kirk that he cannot reveal exactly what's going on. He can't tell Mm. them about the exact nature of the light. He says, obviously you have to make some announcement, but you can't tell them that you've been corrupt, that, that that's your evil half running around. You can't give them all the details because as a captain, you must appear perfect. You must appear always above reproach. If you don't, you will be seen as weak and then you will lose the respect of your crew. Right. This is where our bit of narrative dissonance comes in or potential narrative dissonance because there's a reason Spock is making these conclusions. Later in the episode, you'll see that Spock empathizes with Kirk because he knows of his own human Vulcan struggle going on inside, and he sees the manifestation of these two halves as parts of Kirk that are at war. The trouble is that nobody else has come to the same conclusion. All they know is that there is a bestial and a passive form. Everyone but Spock, and we haven't even been communicated to that Spock knows this himself. We're just inferring this from later in the episode. Nobody actually knows that these two halves of the personality have come from within James, which is why the advice is a little odd, saying you can't show them your weakness. Well, what weakness? We haven't concluded what these entities are. You actually have to have information from later in the episode to infer back to this moment to see, okay, Spock's already figured out where the personality traits have come from while everyone else hasn't. That makes his advice make a lot of sense. When you're in the middle of the episode moving forward, you might say, why is he being so angry? Because this is the, one of the few moments in the episode where his, his voice actually raises. And he becomes very aggressive in delivering this advice. Now, fair enough, he's the, he's the executive officer, that's his role. But it does come a little bit out of left field, unless you have both the first part of the episode in mind, where they talk about the differing natures, and the later part in mind where Spock says, I know where these natures come from. If you meet both of those in this middle, it makes sense. But if you don't have both halves, it's a little less continuous. Yeah, because in that, because I was at the time we were watching, I was saying, well, I think Spock remembers that bit with the dog and about how the dog was split into, and how it's important that the crew doesn't realize that you're to a degree have these dark emotions. But Ethan also raises good points. I was curious what you thought about about that. Did you see any kind of narrative dissonance there between Spock's order? Because Kirk, in the episodes, is you're right, Spock. Right, I don't know why I didn't think of that. I will make an announcement that does not give away my own failing in this mm. in this sequence. Well, I think that um, just from a storytelling standpoint, um, it's interesting because they they pit both a passive and a active character against one another, and that's really where the tension lies in in the whole episode. Right, I see what you're saying about like the order in which the information comes can kind of muddle what Spock is kind of saying in a way but I think it it, as an audience since we've already found out the passive and the uh, um, aggressive or whatever I think it 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 still works Mm. yeah I I don't give many negative points for this in fact very few I just don't connect it as strongly as you guys might to the need to not announce this to the crew because if there were uh, two opposites on the ship there's no logical reason for the crew to deduce that the evil one and the good one are part of Kirk's personality. That's yeah. actually a small conclusion. I, I agree with you on that. Um, I think that because there's there's an order of hierarchy, right, on the ship. Even if Kirk ends up in these two states and the crew finds out because they are told that, they know that Spock's going to be there. That's why uh, Yeoman asks for Spock, right, in, in the in earlier in the episode. And so I think, I think it would be fine. Yeah. Do I, I think all the information is in the episode to understand it completely? Absolutely. Yeah. I just think a little bit of tighter information presentation would have benefited. Yeah, I, I, I think the only thing, and I agree, I think to me the biggest thing is, I've seen all these episodes multiple times, so I have a little bit of a, um, like, I rem- when I start watching it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it, to me there's a degree yeah. of fuzziness. I do think watching it again that the scene with the dog is too far ahead of I, this scene. I agree with that. Because that's the important information because we're going through this because the first part of the episode is 
very good but very slow pace, so it doesn't take us long to discuss it. But that earlier scene where Scotty explains the two halves of the dog are opposites is like 10, 15 minutes before this scene. So I feel like just a little bit of adjusting in the scenes might have made this a little bit yeah, clearer. Yeah, or as I say, it needs to pull a little from the other end and bring the, the future a little closer to the middle. Either way, this isn't a big issue. Um, one of my probably my biggest features as a, as a critic here, which is a little unfair, is that I equate all issues and allow everyone who's listening to make their decisions on their own about how serious those issues are. Here, I don't see that it actually caused any big drawback to the episode. I just think that it's something to comment on that makes a, a moment that's very emotional for Spock. Usually there's a reason. Yeah, Spock is, is always under control. And this is a great episode for Spock, actually. Because on the surface, this is a Kirk episode. Because Kirk is the one who split. It's Kirk's own personality fighting itself. Mm-hmm. But this is also a really, really good Spock episode. And I would also argue a really good Sulu episode at the same time. Even though Sulu doesn't do any serious character drama, he's shown to be incredibly competent and skilled in this episode. So it's, it'll put, it paints Sulu in a good light. But we go back to the commercial break. Good Kirk is continuing. He has a captain's log about how he's losing his own will. He's becoming very passive. Command mm-hmm. is becoming muddled. He makes his announcement. Attention crew, there is an imposter aboard. He looks exactly like me. He's disguised like me, but he's not me. You have to capture him. Don't kill him. You know, this is an order from Captain Kirk. He's got three scratches on his face. That's how you can identify him. Because when Rand scratched him, she left a big, big mark. Mm -hmm. So then we have this delightful bit where evil Kirk starts screaming, I'm Captain Kirk! I'm Captain Kirk! And he smashes a monitor and he makes these crazy faces that I'm sure you've all seen GIFs of or pictures of online. This is a podcast, so I can't throw the picture up there. Maybe I will on the YouTube video if I'm feeling like really, really (laughs) willing to do it. Probably not. But he goes absolutely ham. It's one of those things where I talk about, in this episode, Shatner is both so good and so bad, even in, like, the same scene. Because the parts on the bridge where he's very indecisive, he's really selling that. He's playing a very timid version of his more noble character. But then he, he almost goes too far. He might go too far, but I kind of find it so delightful that it's like, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm fully on board with this. Absolutely. This is this is good stuff. This is what I'm into Star Trek here for. I, I was never a Star Trek person before this, and I still wouldn't call myself a Star Trek person, but this is what I want. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. <laughs> but um, they show some clever script writing here where Evil Kirk, he is animalistic. He is instinctual, but he's not totally unintelligent because he finds some makeup in the quarters that he's in, and he uses it to disguise the scarring so that nobody can immediately recognize him. So the crew is on a full hunt for him. They've all got phasers. And Evil Kirk sees Crewman Fisher out in the hallway. Not Fisher, sorry, Crewman Wilson. I was about to say, that would have been bad luck for Fisher. He calls Crewman Wilson. He says, Wilson. And Evil Kirk's kind of gotten a hold of himself. He's, he's taking control of his raging emotions. And he says, uh, Fisher, what's going on? He says, oh, sir, we're looking for the duplicate. And then Evil Kirk sucker punches Fisher. Not Fisher, Wilson. Sucker punches Wilson, drags him into the quarters, and steals his phaser. But... Okay, I think it kind of didn't make sense for him to do that, because he asked for the phaser, he hands it over, and then he just attacks him. It's true, there's no reason for Kirk, evil Kirk, but he's like, he's a savage, he's that, a wild well, man. It's, well, true, I think the big part of it is that this episode does a better job of portraying the sides as less good and evil. A lot of summaries will say good and evil, because it's an easy way to remember it, and mm-hmm. what other Kirk does definitely has a lot of evil stuff to it, let's not jump off that, but... I think that an almost more accurate description is there's a an, a primal or animalistic side, and then yeah. there's the, Society. the passive and, the s- and it's almost and like nature nurture in, in a way be than good and evil. Yeah, um, will we still call it good and evil and all these? Other yeah, but because that's easy to easy to work with. But I do think that there's a lot of a degree to which he just needs to attack things. Because that's just part of his drive. He's a cornered animal, and he's on the run. He's not necessarily thinking straight. Because even the episode, we'll get to that, they get real heavy on the philosophy, which I like by Star Trek to be nice and talky, so I certainly don't mind that. We're going to get to that a little bit, where they argue it's not necessarily good and evil, but we cut to the conference room. Good Kirk is sitting in the dark because he's not sure what to do, and he gets a call from, from Sulu. Sulu and his boys are down on the planet. It's dropped to below 30. It's already 20 degrees below zero. Ain't exactly balmy. It ain't exactly Bobby Sulu's life. George Takei crushing it. Sulu with that gallows humor. The men are wrapped up in the blankets. 
Spock says they beamed down heaters to try and help them, but the heaters split on the transport down and became useless. So they can't even send supplies down. So Sulu has the best line of the episode where he says, maybe could you find a long rope and lower us down a pot of hot coffee? <laughs> and he's got this smirk on his face where he's like, well, if I'm going to die, I'm going to get a quip out. Hesitant Kirk goes, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> Sulu, it's not done yet. He says, I'll take some rice wine if you can't find any of that uh, good hot coffee. Can't have sake. That's uh, that's uh, not an understood word by the American audience. I just think that Sulu is coming on real strong in this episode. Oh, like, he's, he's great. He's probably one of the best parts of this if episode. If McCoy's taking a few steps down, Spock and uh, Sulu are taking a few steps up for me. I wrote in my notes, Sulu is such a gangster. So Sulu, in a very intelligent Starfleet manner, he takes his hand phaser and he uses it to heat up some of the rocks. They talk about how they've been doing this. This is Starfleet survival methods. And he talks about how they burned out two or three of the phasers already, doing the battery on this. They can't keep doing this forever. But they're using the heat from the rocks to keep themselves alive for a while longer. Which is super neat. It shows some they've probably got some emergency survival training, all that kind of stuff that you would need to be an expeditionary force. And it makes so. sense. It, it's, sci it's scientifically sound. You can do that sort of thing hypothetically, and it works real good. We now discover, however, that um, Evil Kirk is not doing so hot. He is starting to struggle, and he is starting to die, and he's not doing so well. He's run off to the engineering room. But we don't know that quite yet, because it's Spock's plan that actually helps us out. In his logical way of thinking, he approaches Kirk and says, we got to think like him. We've we, got to know what he's going to do. Because we know he has your information, because he called Wilson by name, yep. and he knew how to use the phaser, he knew how to, yep. to blend in. So the, the whole plan is for Kirk to think like Kirk and anticipate where he's going to be. And that's great. The other Kirk wouldn't have thought like that because he doesn't have a Spock to, to help yeah. him get back into the moment and think properly. But this Kirk does. Mm -hmm. and, and so that shows the benefit of, of Spock. And it's, it's a good thing to say that Spock here isn't ambitious for the position of captain. No, not at all. Um, that's something else that really shines in this episode is that while he is there to accept responsibility if it's needed and is absolutely clear on that point, Kirk is not having his authority usurped. And mm -hmm. Spock is there to make sure he is capable of fulfilling his responsibilities for as long as possible. It makes you really love Spock on this episode, for sure. Oh, Spock is great. Because he even says to Kirk, like, just so you are aware, at some point I will probably have to take command. And Kirk isn't like, how dare you try to steal my... He says, yeah, I know. I know I'm falling apart, and I don't want to put the ship in danger. Yeah. So the two of them go down alone to engineering. Because Kirk says, if I were trying to hide and avoid a search, I would go down to the bottom of the ship, and I would hide in the engineering bay. Just the two of them go down, and Spock says, shouldn't we have a security team for this? Kirk says, no, I don't want anyone to see that part of me, if possible. Too late. <laughs> they kept it to a relatively a minimum. You've got your good friend, Bones has seen it. You've shown it to your high school crush, she's seen it, and some random guy who will never come back again. So he's done a pretty good job of keeping the damage under wraps. But this is our first time in the engineering set. Yes, this is the very first time we'll see the engineering set. It looks great. Mm-hmm. It looks like they've adopted some um, materials from old pumping units. I've seen the inside of some uh, pumping stations and stuff. It looks mm -hmm. very similar to that. Um, I think they did a pretty good job. The only thing I'd say is that the, the square or flat sections of the engineering bay could use a few extra accessories. But then again, I'm not going to hold that against them. I just think it could have brought a little extra personality. But the tubing and stuff like really does feel like the inside of a starship, so I give them a lot of credit. It's no warp core set that they'll do in later shows where they kind of change how the engineering room looks. But I really like it. It's a really effective little set. And we have a lot of really good camera work and editing here because they obviously have to play with the fact that it's really expensive to shoot overlapping film, and Shatner's playing both parts. Mm -hmm. And they have to use a lot of body doubles and a lot of quick camera work. So we have a lot of really good intercut shots of this scene as they stalk each other through the engineering bay. And Evil Kirk is up top. He's trying to find them. Good Kirk is underneath, looking around. Evil Kirk sneaks up behind Good Kirk. There is one janky cut. And I do you do you guys know where it was? The one before he drops down? Yeah. Yeah. Camera's yeah. <laughs> weren't perfectly washed janky, down. But that was, that's the only one that I, I, I noticed at all. I noticed there were a couple of shots of Kirk and what I assume was a body double on the same shot, but the body double Kirk was behind, like, a half-visible screen. Mm -hmm. yep. I mean, good, again, a lot of credit to um, director Leo Penn here, because 
for that time period, it would not have been that easy to cut this together well. And honestly, I think they did a pretty good job. I agree that there was a Jenkins shot, and I would point out that they used that old trick of, I'm going to put our Shatner lookalike behind this kind of mesh screen, so yeah. it's not... In, but it works pretty well. And Shatner's not just not just hiding. He's stalking them, in a way. He's he's evidence that you don't feed your gremlins after midnight or get them wet. Exactly. He's, he's basically mm. in that sort of creepy sort of very primal behavior. He's yeah. not just hiding there to kill them, he's yeah. behaving. He's like almost, and prey almost. He's yeah, almost yeah. moving on all fours when he's up on top. He uses yeah. a, it's a really clever way of showing it. He gets the drop on Goodkirk, but can't bring himself to immediately fire. And mm. Goodkirk says, you're not going to kill me, you can't kill me. I'm you. We're part of the same thing. And Evil Kirk, acting on instinct, says, I don't need you, and goes to fire. And then we get our very first ever Vulcan neck pinch, where Spock gets behind Evil Kirk and gives him the Vulcan neck pinch. This is, A, a very iconic Spock thing, and B, made up by Leonard Nimoy on the spot, because Leonard Nimoy wasn't just an actor, he was the character. See, in the original script, Spock was supposed to pistol whip Evil Kirk and knock him out. Leonard Nimoy said, no, that doesn't feel right, for this character. He's a scientist. He's a thinking man. He's not going to just knock over a dude on the head. And they said, well, what do you think we should do instead, uh, uh, Nimoy? And he said, well, what if, because Spock is a scientist, he knows anatomy so well, what if he knows where pressure points are? Like, uh, Bill, come over here. And he demonstrated it on Shatner himself. And they did it. And they really liked it. And they kept it in. So this is another thing already that Spock was being created organically as a character. His... Mm motivations on script and in acting, and so much credit belongs to Nimoy for that. Now, is there a difference it. in terminology? Because we might have stepped on the toes of some of the long-term trekkies, because we called this one the Vulcan mind meld. Is this... The, the, the mind meld is a different thing. Right, so this is the Vulcan what? This is the Vulcan neck pinch. Okay. The mind meld is when you have two beings psychically connected so they can read each other's thoughts. Mm. If you think this is called the death grip, you're wrong. That's another one of those like society like, hey, Dr. Spock with his Vulcan death grip. It's the Vulcan neck pinch or the Vulcan nerve pinch. See, I'm looking out for you guys in the audience. Got your back. Remember that later when I say something really dumb. They, <laughs> Evil Kirk tries to shoot, but he blows a hole in the transport. That'll come up in a little bit. They knock him out and take him to sickbay. He's freaking out in the sickbay, Evil Kirk. Good Kirk is trying to get through to him. He comforts him to a degree. He says, you know, I understand that you're afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Think. Use yeah. your mind. Overcome your fear. It's not about instinct. Like, we don't have to be scared. And Evil Kirk settles a bit. There's there's two things in here that I think is are particularly interesting. One is the interaction that Spock brings to the table. Well, first, McCoy and Spock. McCoy bringing up, do you have a point, Spock? Said, yes, always. <laughs> and then he mentions something about the, the negative side and the positive side, and, and particularly in there he says, the positive side, which Earth people say is compassion, and he lifts off a thing of, of positive traits. And it's interesting there because we're, of course, in a setting where there are alien races, and we haven't come across too many of them with alternative perceptions of exactly what good is. So I'm looking forward to the fact that we might run across in the future episodes where there is more of a difference on not just what that someone is good or evil, but what good and evil are to different people. It's one line, and it's so brilliant. Because if you know your Star Trek, you know to a Vulcan, the ultimate good is logic, rational thinking, composure, mm -hmm. putting the good of many ahead of the good of an individual. And while those are, to a degree, noble goals... We as humans might not necessarily see those as the ultimate goal, whereas to a Vulcan, that is the ultimate good. It's not love. It's yeah. not even compassion. It's rational thinking. It's pure logic above all else. Spock is the scientist of this scene. I actually think it's a great moment. It's a little unnerving, and it reminds us that Spock is an alien because he's so excited about this opportunity to study the two halves of this individual and see how they function, even though this is his good friend. Yeah. And McCoy's like, well, we can't just... Treat him like a lab animal, and McCoy is being McCoy, and Spock is being Spock. It's a great little scene. And he says, if I seem insensitive, it's the way I am. Which is a great line that Spock delivers. Mm. Great line. McCoy, though, gives Kirk the pep talk. Because Kirk is really struggling because he's like, I've seen this dark part of myself, and I don't like it. I don't like that that is part of me. McCoy says, well, you know, maybe it's more complicated than that. Where do you think some of your command decision comes from? What do you think makes you such a good captain? 
you have, you know, an, it comes from him. You've got his aggression. You've got his temperament. You've got his instinct. He says, well, then what do I have? He says, but you have the compassion. You have the logic. You have the rationality. You have the courage. Because McCoy says the difference between you and him is that he was afraid. Mm -hmm. You were not. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant scene. Very philosophical. Very Trek. Scotty calls from the transporter and says, hey, we think we fixed it. We can try it. We're going to send the dog through. Well, no, because, well, that is true. That's what happens next. But we did miss a small important detail, which is that Scotty found a new problem with the transporter. There's a hole in the wall! Yeah, because <laughs> um, it, of course, got shot when um, Good and Evil Carver were facing each other down. Right when the neck pinch went down, uh, the phaser shot went wide and blew a hole in the transporter circuitry. So He says, we won't be able to fix it for a week. But then they do. But then they do, because I guess they're just that good. We have our first instance of Star Trek Technobabble, where they say a bunch of tech words really fast, and none of us really know what they're saying, and it doesn't matter. Um, tech Technobabble will always be bonus points, by the way, just as a thing. I love when science fiction does it. Sometimes Technobabble is done poorly, there are and you're just like, that, is, that is bad. That is bad. But but if, as long as it's like with contained... And sounds to some degree reasonable. It helps with suspension of disbelief. I think this is a good example of Technobabble because it's one little sequence. There's a couple episodes of TNG, particularly in the early days, that is like 80% Technobabble. And that's terrible. Mm -hmm. You want to use Technobabble in service of the plot, not the plot in service of the Technobabble. Scotty's fixed the transporter, but he's not sure if it's going to work. So they send a live dog and a stuffed animal through the transporter. <laughs> that stuffed animal... I mean, it looks pretty good, actually, like, compared to some other duplicates I've seen for things. Like, that's not bad. The only problem is it becomes really obvious because for the transporter effect to work, they have to take a freeze frame and fade it out. And in the freeze frame, it is so clear that that is a stuffed dog and then a real dog. <laughs> they phase it out. They bring it back. This is the first time we see the transporter recall function used. It's a very handy little thing for getting people out of trouble when they might otherwise die a horrible death. But the dog dies, sad face. Giving us our first instance of... He's dead, Jim. But no dogs were harmed in the making of this program. Right, because when the dog returned, it was the stuffed animal version of yeah. the dog. Yeah, you know the actual dog was okay. This isn't like <laughs> Trouble with Tribbles, where a bunch of Tribbles die in that episode, and people wrote angry letters in saying, how could you kill all these Tribbles for real? We want to adopt the other Tribbles that are alive. And the Tribbles are little carpet puppets. <laughs> this is a true story. So is you can read. Okay. We'll get there. We'll okay. Go. The dog was not the real dog was not killed, but the fake dog was killed, and it was very sad. But again, most important is we have the first instance of McCoy saying he's dead, Jim, which is his other catchphrase. Yes, I'm afraid though that with his general behavior in this episode, it doesn't climb him back up the list. That's that's still Sulu and Spock holding the top notch for this episode. We have a commercial break. Comes back. Spock does the officer's log. He calls it a second officer's log. That's a little bit of um. Of, like, a little mistake, but that'll be rad, because for the rest of the show, he's the first officer. Mm -hmm. I think that's just a case of the writer for this particular episode didn't fully understand terminology, because Spock is second in command, so he should be second officer. It's not a big deal, it doesn't matter. We also see that Lieutenant Farrow is back! Woo! Which makes him the first navigator to be in more than one episode. He is back, he's on the bridge, he's missing part of his uniform, but that's okay, because he is still there. Are you sure he's missing part of his uniform? Because I'm sure it was there. Well, because we have a technical error where in the first sequence he's looking straight at the camera, and he's missing his his little badge on his uniform, but then when he turns around to face Evil Kirk when he comes on the bridge, he's wearing the badge again. And in fact, you're going to see a lot of technical errors like that in this episode, I'm afraid to say. The cinematography is great. Consistency between shots, not so much. There's a whole sequence where Evil Kirk scratches actually move to the other side of his face, which is, you know, usually an oversight that some sort of continuity specialist will look for. But I'm pretty convinced this show didn't have the budget for a continuity specialist. This scene is a really good acting from Nimoy, as he kind of reveals a little bit that he's a little nervous about what's going to happen to Kirk and to the away team, because good Kirk can't make decisions. He's, he's paralyzed with inability to act. And the crew down there is struggling. McCoy wants to do another autopsy on the dog and be certain of what killed him. Spock believes that it was the shock of the two halves being split and brought back together is what killed the dog because it's just an animal. It doesn't have the higher brain function that Kirk has. It's like, Kirk, you understand what's happening. You understand that you've been split and reunified. You don't have to worry about dying like this dog will. But McCoy doesn't want to risk it because Kirk is his 
best yeah, friend, and it's his life on the line, he doesn't want to risk it. And this is where a lot of Spock's um, profundity from this episode comes, because he talks about the brain's capacity to handle this kind of war, because he, he talks about the dual natures that he has and, and the internal struggle yeah. that is the first, carrying on within the him. The first time it's brought up that this is a struggle, that this is hard for him, he says, I understand perfectly, Doctor, because I am also a creature of two halves. A human and alien half. Again, he doesn't say he's a Vulcan. He says, I am two halves. They are always at war with each other, but I survive because my intelligence wins out over both halves and forces them to live together. And Kirk, even though he's almost paralyzed, grits his teeth and says, do the thing. I will go through the transporter. We cannot let Sulu and the other guys die. Because Sulu's called up again in this time saying that room service has been taking a while and he would like to hurry up and get out of here if it's not too much trouble because it's not yeah, exactly let's, let's look at these. I wrote a lot of these quotes down. Give room service another call. Coffee's taking too long. And uh, <laughs> any chance of getting them up, getting us up before the ski season. Sulu <laughs> is like freezing to death on the planet, but he's got time for quips. <laughs> Kirk sends Spock to work on the transport and get it ready and McCoy to do more autopsies, leaving him alone with evil Kirk. Evil Kirk says, I don't want to fight you anymore, Kirk. You know, I understand. And because, but because that harder edge that you need to be like, well, I don't necessarily trust you is in Evil Kirk, good Kirk undoes Evil Kirk's restraints and helps him up. And and I would hold it against him that he didn't bring in security, but it was fairly established early on they're trying to minimize crew contact with the situation. Mm -hmm. So, again, it's a good pass. There was a setup. That's It's fair. Mm -hmm. And again, I would also add to that, A, that is also true, and I'd also add to that that at this point, good Kirk has become so passive that he wouldn't even necessarily consider that yeah, evil yeah. Kirk might might have another agenda, because yeah. I don't. So obviously evil Kirk attacks good Kirk, knocks him the heck out, switches their uniforms, so he puts on the little green relaxed dress, makes his way out, has a little creepy scene with Janice going up the elevator where he tells her, hey, I wasn't myself, I was a duplicate, I'd love to come by your quarters and explain it. And she's like, okay. a little frightened still because of what happened, but she's like, okay, that makes sense. And he gives this kind of evil little smirk, goes up to the bridge, and says, all right, Spock, we're going to leave orbit. Because evil Kirk is acting purely out of self-preservation. He knows if he goes to that transport, he might die. Yeah. And they're only thinking about rushing it so much because they have to save the other crewmen. So he says, let's just leave. We're going to leave. Spock is like, what the heck? And Pharaoh's like, what the heck? He's like, no, trust me, I'm in command. Those men are dead anyway, let's just go. But then good Kirk and McCoy also arrive on the bridge. Mm -hmm. We have a little bit of uh, Solomon and the baby, and whose baby is it? The two Spider-Man scenario. The two, Sp <laughs> two Spider-Mans. But unlike two Spider-Man, good Kirk knows that evil Kirk can't keep it under wraps. Because yeah. they're both dying. Like, they're both literally dying as yeah. they are unable to survive. And good Kirk has all the restraint. So evil Kirk immediately breaks down about how... He's an imposter. He's going to steal a ship. He throws one of the crewmen. He pulls out a phaser. It's very dramatic. He's, he's waving it around. You know, I'm Kirk. I'm the captain. You have to follow my orders. I'm the captain. And good Kirk goes over to him and says, you know what? We are the same, you and I. I can't live without you. You yeah. can't live without me. It's okay. And like they embrace. And it's actually and like very touching. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is where we get a lot of that um, callback to the Jungian psychology of things with personas. I think that Jung is not usually a great thinker, like just generally. But the one thing I'll give him credit for is, is his popularization of the persona idea. It's, it's neat at least to, to consider the idea that everything about yourself that you're unwilling to face manifests itself as some internal persona and which the only way to properly deal with, because you need to deal with it. If you keep ignoring it, it will control you. Um, the only way to do that is to turn to it and accept it and face it. And then once you've accepted it as part of yourself, you can start dealing with some of the harder and unfortunate realities of it. But until you turn to face it and accept it, nothing's going to happen. And and that's an interesting thing to look at. It's, it's sort of all over this episode. This is a brilliant episode from a pure philosophical standpoint, yeah. I think. And this scene is a perfect, of the whole thing where Kirk, this whole episode has been struggling with this dark side. And it is a dark side. It is dangerous. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, like Spock even says, you know, your, your lust unchecked, your rage unchecked, your anger unchecked. Those mm -hmm. are dangerous things. Yeah. yeah. But you also need that part of you. And, the, it, like, when they hug, it's like they accept that they both need each yeah. other. That, in a sense, bad Kirk knows that his aggression has to be checked. Yeah. And good Kirk understands he needs that edge. Which I think it plays into why they, they're able to go through with and, and stay alive after their reunification. 
because I want to live. Yeah. That, like, they we're realize ourselves that. Well, it's the recognition. I want to live. I am you and you are me. You'll be there at yeah. the end as well. That That's a really big part of it. If you are looking into look into uh, some other fiction that really does dip into um, per- personas and the idea of duality and all that stuff, like there is a whole game series called Persona. Persona 4 in particular deals with Jungian psychology. There's a lot of stuff out there that you can find that's just neat to, to look into because I think that regardless of which base of philosophy you're starting with, our, we are we're religious guys, we're Christians, Obviously. and um, there's this there's a truth that sort of sits at the bottom of it is that in no way of moving forward in life are you going to find it successful to ignore the things that you need to take care of. There's I, absolutely no way forward without turning to face the things that are going to rule you. And that's a universal theme, regardless of what of what you believe. And I think that's why this episode is so good, because everybody, to a degree, understands that you can't purely ignore those parts of you, but you also can't let those parts of you control you either. You you need that. You need both. And I think this is just a brilliant episode for all that. Yeah, but the journey starts with recognition, and that's yeah. what this is. A lot of this is is fundamentally about. So Kirk takes himself and evil Kirk to the transporter, and he says to Spock. You know, if this doesn't work, Spock simply says, I understand. He's setting that up where it's like, just in case I die, you know you're in charge. They go through the transporter. There's a moment of tension as Spock himself gets them worked out in the matter stream. Spock is getting it together. He brings it back. One Kirk shows up. He's facing away from us. McCoy and Spock are a little concerned. He turns around. The dramatic, positive, upbeat brass band music starts playing, and Spock says, what are your orders, Captain? He says, get those men out of there right away. And we know Kirk is back. Kirk is back. Yeah. He's, he's accepted that. We have our final scene. We see the four crewmen brought aboard. McCoy says they have some pretty serious frostbite, but he thinks he's going to make it. But then he says, you know, Jim, how are you doing? He says, I've seen a part of myself today that no man should see. How do you think I'm doing? He goes back onto the bridge, and we have our final scene where Spock is not a bro. Hits on Rand for Kirk? Yes, he's trying to wingman, and he does it very poorly. I'm, I'm going to say, Spock, you wouldn't want Spock riding shotgun for you or playing wingman. It's, it's bad. This has been a fairly traumatic experience for everyone but Spock. Yeah. yeah. McCoy was a little freaked out by seeing his good buddy grab his throat. Janice was uh, very upset. Kirk was upset, and Spock was just like, hey, Janice. Uh, what, what is his line? The imposter had some qualities. Didn't he, Yeoman? And, and she, like, after he oh, you know, almost like, even no, after yeah. he got handsy with her. No, yeah. this is that's bad. But after Spock, he got creepy no. with her. Yeah. It's like Spock, no. Spock, no. I'm gonna chalk that up to being like 1966, and they didn't fully understand sensitivity to these sorts of things. But yeah. you know, you could, if you want to also view it, you could say Spock is an emotionless alien, and that maybe he true. doesn't understand what's inappropriate. That's his Vulcan. Because friends, now. that was inappropriate. But that brings us to the end of an episode that. Going in, I had very low expectations for, but was very, very impressed with. The only um, we've talked about pretty much all the behind-the-scenes stuff as we've gone through it already. The only thing that is worth pointing out is that the little subplot with Sulu and the others was not present in the original script, and Matterson did not like it. He did not like B stories in his thing. He said they slowed plots down and said, um, "quote My script stayed entirely with Bill, uh, meaning Shatner, having this trouble of his two selves on the ship." They added a whole subplot about people down on the planet ready to freeze to death because they have a transporter functioning problem. In my script, I stuck entirely with Bill. Did you guys? How do you guys feel about like this? Because I respectfully, I thought Matheson wrote a brilliant script, but I respectfully disagree with him here. I thought the Sulu stuff was important to add a little bit of tension to the narrative, yeah. but it didn't take up very much screen time. It, to call it a B story is is a little disingenuous because these are fifty minute episodes, and I'm pretty sure it was only like what five six minutes. It was just there in the background to provide a little bit of tension for it. Yeah, I, I I totally agree with that. You think that that would fit? You think that fit in okay? The B story? Yeah, I I don't I don't even really call it a B story. It, it's part of the main plot to bring a sense of time into the to make it good. I think it drove the plot in a way without overshadowing it. Yeah, it really gave more than just one motivator to quote unquote good Kirk. Yeah. You had Spock whispering in Kirk's ear saying, like, we've got to get this going. But one of the main motivators at the end was Kirk listening in on Sulu as he was fading. As he was, as he was freezing and saying, I can't see clearly. I can't think clearly. And that's, that's have, what literally freezing to death is. They, they weren't stripping. That's also part of freezing to death in a lot of cases. But in this one, you, you see the slowing. You see the, the, 
the diminishment of biological mm-hmm. function. You see all these things as just things start shutting down, and that gives him a moment to become motivated. That's and I'm like, could it have functioned without it? Yes, but does it make it better? I would say yes. Uh, and it really helps us with Kirk's character because you know, even though he's struggling and even though he might die, he cares so much about his crew and his friends that that's what pushes him forward. So this is the part of the show where we give our ratings. If this is the first time you've tuned in to the Boldly Going podcast before, we rate our episodes on an A to F scale with pluses and minuses included. So let's shake things up a little bit and start with Bailey since he wasn't here last week. Bailey, what would you rate this episode? I would give it a solid A. A full um, A, nice. Yes, um, just because I, it, it just it's so consistent with just great storytelling and uh, amazing shots, and it, it was just I, I really really enjoyed it, especially after our previous episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say that this is for me personally because I I know Ethan wants to talk a little bit about this because he really really liked this episode, so I'm gonna let you be the final one to bring it home. For me, I think this episode was miles better than Mud's Women. For me, I liked it just a little bit less than Bailey. I'm going to have to go with an A- because I don't think I liked this episode better than Corbomite, even though it's hard to compare them. They're very different, but I gave Corbomite an A-, so I couldn't quite bring myself to give this episode a full A like Bailey did. But everything he said, I, it echoes. I think it's very, very good. I like philosophy. The plot is mm-hmm. fairly solid. I like all the actors. I like episodes where the rest of the cast has something to do. Yeah. Scotty and Sulu were heavily involved in this episode. I... Can't quite in my brain figure out what would bump this episode up to an A from an A minus. It's not like Corbomite where I know what bumped it from an A to an A minus. It's something I would have known it when I saw it. But for me, A minus, solid episode for Bailey and A. For Ethan, what is your rating for? I gotta say, this is probably one of the most well-written episodes so far. Uh, I think the acting was was good. Even the hammy parts, and the reason I say that is because you're in a situation where half of their higher brain function is separated into a separate being. Mm-hmm. So the fact of these sort of weird and exaggerated facial expressions and emotions and presentations, that is actually all consistent within the story itself. So while Hammy, it actually fits to some degree. Um, Kirk comes across as a good captain in both his pre- and post-split moments, and you in fact learn a little bit more about what makes him a captain when he's functioning properly. So I think that that was done very well. I like the characterization, the things that we learn about characters and new iconic moments coming into this episode. A little bit more world building as well. Like There's a lot of things building into this episode. We also have a good um, engagement with the premise of science fiction, the encounter with the unknown. It's not a new alien species. It's not a new planet. But it is an interaction with an unknown element brought about, yes, by space dust and technological failures, but like that's part of what it means to encounter the future, is seeing how these weird things play out. And yeah, encountering yourself is a fair way to play out that idea. Ideas don't always have to be a specific thing to play out properly. It doesn't have to be a planet or a race, but it has to be played out. And I think this one did it fine too. And the episode premise is, is just very welcome. The fact that it is dealing with something a little more psychologically themed, and that that's just something I appreciate. It's showing a little bit of diversity to how this show is playing out, and, and that's going to get me coming back for more. So I'm going to give this a, a really high A-, minus, breaking into my A's for the first time. For the first A from Ethan. Yes, um, and I have a feeling it'll be the first one for a while. But we'll see. I'm always get ready to be pleasantly surprised by things. So our overall consensus is very high. This is the highest rated episode on average so far with an A and two A minuses, which edges it just above Corbomite, which was two A minuses and a B plus. Mm-hmm. And so we highly recommend you check this one out. If you don't remember it from your previous viewings, give it another shot. It's very good. Now join us next week for another episode that is equally good, but in very different ways because it involves a salt vampire and an old lady getting double-punched in the face by Spock. It's called Man Trap, and it is fantastic. So join us next week for Man Trap. Until then, everyone, thank you for spending this time with us. Enjoy the rest of your week.